Welcome to the Grace at a Glance podcast from Grace Church of Linnets and Grace Creative. We are a Jesus church where the gospel is central, where we love Jesus, build people, and lead revival. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for this opportunity to share with you. And uh, thanks especially to Pastor Tim for that uh, warm welcome and introduction and as well to his wife, Tammy. We've had some wonderful moments uh, the last couple days together. And uh, I just count them as very, very dear friends. As uh, Pastor Tim mentioned, uh, we have a friendship that goes back a long ways. And lots of fun times together and lots of funny times together, usually around hitting a golf ball. So um, we just enjoy being with each other, and it's a privilege to be here. I was here about a decade ago, actually, and it's great to be back with all of you. Thank you for the opportunity. My wife is with me. She's not in this service, but my wife is along. Uh, she taught school for uh, several decades and also is an accomplished flutist, so she's able to be a part of this trip, and thankfully she's able to be with me in uh, trips like this now. We have uh, two daughters who are married, and we have six grandkids who are wonderful, usually, <laughs> ages 12 to almost three. It's, uh, it's just delightful to be a part of their lives as we're able to do that. Uh, and I love being a grandfather. They call me granddaddy because I'm from Mississippi originally, so that's my name with them. So uh, I brought along a copy of, uh, several copies of a book that I wrote about Israel. Uh, what it's like, some of you are interested in going to Israel, uh, perhaps you can't go, but I brought along a copy of a book that I wrote about what it's like to visit the Holy Land called Walk the Bible in 30 Days. They're available out in the lobby for a donation. If you're interested afterwards, that would be great. Help yourself. So years ago, I heard somebody say, when Jerusalem sneezes, Wall Street catches a cold. That's a pretty good description, actually. It's an amazing assessment of how the world reacts when something of significance happens in the city of Jerusalem. Now, if I were to ask you how big Jerusalem is, I wonder what you'd say. Frankly, our image of the city of Jerusalem is a lot bigger than it actually is. In fact, did you know there are a thousand cities, one thousand cities around the world that are at least as big or bigger than Jerusalem? Two hundred of those, more or less, are in the country of China alone, and you probably haven't heard of most of those cities. So it's not an exaggeration at all to say that per capita, Jerusalem attracts more attention than any other city in the world. In fact, it seems like perhaps the most insignificant thing in Jerusalem can grab world attention. There may be some kind of a terrorist incident or a threat of a terrorist incident or a rumor of a terrorist incident, and it's all over the news. And yet there are people who are brutally murdered in the city that's close to me, Cleveland, or Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, and it hardly makes the local news. 
What in the world is that all about? I'm not suggesting we should ignore what happens in Jerusalem, but why does it get so much attention compared to other cities? You know what it means to be under a microscope, right? To make something that is being examined bigger so you can see it better. Well, it's almost like Jerusalem is that for the world. Whatever happens there is everybody's business. Everybody wants to know what's going on. That's been especially true these last several weeks. If you've been following the news at all about Israel, if you care at all about that, they've been undergoing some judicial reforms, and it's like everybody in the world's got to have an opinion about what's going on in Israel. In fact, uh, three weeks ago, on July the 19th, the current president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, addressed the... uh, Good morning, everyone. I think we're going backwards with those. Let's try this way. Not yet. There we go. So this guy, Isaac Herzog, addressed the joint sessions of Congress. He's one of only 120 world leaders who've ever done that. He is uh, the current president of Israel. In fact, of those 120 world leaders who've ever addressed the joint sessions of Congress, several of them have been leaders from Israel. Now, why in the world would that happen? Why would an Israeli leader be invited from a relatively small country of only 8 million people, why would he be invited to address the joint leaders of our nation? Well, I want to answer some of those questions this morning for a few minutes. And to set the stage for what I want to share with you, I want to read just one verse from the book of 2 Chronicles. Here's what God says. I have chosen Jerusalem for my name to be there. And I've chosen David to rule my people Israel. In other words, one of the reasons why Jerusalem demands, maybe the central reason why Jerusalem demands so much of the world's attention is because God said, that's where I'm going to reveal myself. That's where my name's going to be declared. He didn't say that about Tokyo. He didn't say it about Mexico City. He didn't say that about New York City. And he certainly didn't say that about Washington, D.C., He said it about Jerusalem. It's a city that belongs to God himself. You know, there is something captivating about Jerusalem. There really is. I've been there more than 30 times now. And I have to tell you, every time, every time our bus crests the hill and I see Jerusalem, my heart does something that I can't explain kind of like when I see my wife. (laughs) It's almost like I'm going to my spiritual home. It's amazing. There's no other city like it. There's been no other city in the history of the world like Jerusalem. As one author recently wrote in the Wall Street Journal, to study Jerusalem in many ways is to study the story of the world. From the time of the Egyptian pharaohs to the Mesopotamian kings to Greek and Roman emperors to Turkish sultans. Throughout the centuries, Jews scattered all over the world have focused their attention on the city of Jerusalem. 
They've prayed facing Jerusalem. Every year at Passover, Jewish families celebrating a Seder meal will say four words at the end of the Seder meal that some of you will recognize. What are they? Next year in Jerusalem. Next year in Jerusalem. It's their way of saying, we can't wait to get back there. We want to go there. That's where our heart is. So what's the deal? Why does the city of Jerusalem garner so much attention? Well, I want to share some insights this morning that will help answer that question. Jerusalem, you see, is different. It's unique for several reasons. First of all, the city of Jerusalem is the future of God's plan of redemption. It really is the focus of God's plan of redemption, and it has been for generations. Think about this for a minute. God first revealed his redemptive plan for mankind, starting in the days of Abraham, 4,000 years ago. Abraham left his home in what your high school history teacher called Mesopotamia. Now, when I heard that word when I was in high school, I kind of checked out. And I didn't learn as much history as I should have by a long shot. Because our high school teacher would say it's a desert area, and I would just kind of go, yeah, right. But I've since learned that Mesopotamia was the cradle of civilization, they say. The Bible just calls that area between the Tigris and the Euphrates River Ur of the Chaldees, and that was Abraham's home. 4,000 years ago, God told Abraham to go to the land that he was going to show him, and Abraham had no idea where he was going, Hebrews 11 says, but he obeyed. He didn't know where he was going to go. He didn't know how he was going to get there. He didn't have a job offer from a new company. He just knew God told him to go. And I wonder if you've ever thought about the conversation Abraham had with his mom and dad. Can you imagine that? Where are you going? I don't know. You had that conversation with one of your kids? Where are you going? I don't know. Who's going to be there? I don't know. How are you going to get there? I don't know. How are you going to pay for it? I don't know. Why are you going? Because God said. Who's God? Imagine that. Beyond all that, even though he was 100 years old, God gave Abraham the promise that he was going to have a son, that he was going to be made into a great nation. In fact, God says, I'll make your offspring like the dust of the earth. Look up to the heavens and count the stars. Indeed, if you can, count them. So shall your offspring be. And I wonder if Abraham didn't say, what? But Abraham obeyed God, and so he took off, not knowing where he was going, traveling 2,000 miles from Ur of the Chaldees up into what is modern-day Turkey, down along through what is modern-day Syria and Lebanon to the land that God showed him, and he made his home in a town that became known as Beersheba. And the Bible says his servants dug a well there, and that was Abraham's home. And God kept his promise 
And at 100 years old, Abraham became a daddy. And his wife, Sarah, at 90, became a mommy. Talk about a miracle. But one day, God told Abraham, take your son, the son of the promise, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Let me ask you something. Where's the region of Moriah? You know where it is? It's what we call Jerusalem today. In those days, it was simply called Salem or Shalom. There's a word you might recognize, right? So there in the fledgling city of Jerusalem, God first revealed a picture of how he would send his own son to this world who would give his life. Now, if you know the rest of the story, you know that God sent a ram and Abraham didn't have to sacrifice his son Isaac, but it was a magnificent picture of what was going to happen down the road many years later when Jesus would come. A thousand years after Abraham lived on this earth, David appeared as the second king of Israel, the most beloved of all the kings. The Bible tells us that David wanted to build a temple to honor God. He wanted to build a place where sacrifices could be offered. So the Bible says that a prophet named Gad went to David and said to him, go up and build an altar of the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Where in the world was the threshing floor of Aruna? Surprise. It was the same place where Abraham had gone a thousand years earlier to sacrifice his son. It's in the place that today we call Jerusalem. By the time that David bought the threshing floor of Aruna, it was now a small city occupied by the Jebusites. And it became known as Jerusalem. A few years later, God said, David, you can't build this temple. It'll have to be something your son does. And so the scripture says that Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. Where? On Mount Moriah. You see the pattern that's developing? Where the Lord appeared to his father David, it was on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, the place provided by David. So animal sacrifices were offered there year after year for hundreds of years, and every one of those sacrifices, every one of those offerings that was offered was a picture of the one-time payment that Jesus sometime would make down the road. And all those animal sacrifices just kept pointing to what was to come. When the Son of God would appear, well, that glorious temple of Solomon was destroyed about 500 years after it was built when the Babylonians invaded the city of Jerusalem. And more than 500 years after that, Jesus was born in a little town called Bethlehem, about five miles from the city of Jerusalem. He grew up in an insignificant village about 75 miles away. He called his disciples. He taught people, thousands of people, he performed miracles, and the Jewish leaders became threatened by him. And if you've seen any of the scenes in The Chosen, you get a pretty good glimpse of what the religious leaders of Jerusalem thought about Jesus. 
Eventually they had him arrested and tried and crucified. And there in the city where Abraham had gone to sacrifice his son Isaac, where David had dreamed of building a temple, where Solomon built the temple, where thousands and thousands of sacrifices were offered, there in the city of Jerusalem, the Son of God died on a Roman cross. Just outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Bible tells us it was in Jerusalem where the veil of the temple was torn from the top to the bottom, representing how you and I can have access into God's presence at any moment. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus died and was buried in a borrowed tomb and then was resurrected three days later. It was in Jerusalem where Jesus as the resurrected Savior appeared first to Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and then to Peter and John, and then to the rest of the disciples, and then to more than 500 people. You see, God's plan of redemption focused on the city of Jerusalem for thousands of years until finally Jesus accomplished what God had in mind from the beginning of eternity. But you know, whenever God has something in mind, whenever God has a plan, that evil one will do everything he can to disrupt it, right? Have you found that in your own life? If God wants you to do something, is it going to be easy? Not usually. Because the evil one doesn't want you to do what God wants you to do. So he's going to throw roadblocks your way. How about that? Same thing's true in Jerusalem. God's plan was to redeem the world from the work of Jesus that was accomplished on the cross in Jerusalem. Was that easy? Not at all. The evil one opposed that work from being accomplished even to the point where Jesus felt the oppression of evil, sweat great drops of blood as he thought about what was ahead for him in the Garden of Gethsemane. But there's a second reason I want to call to your attention why Jerusalem has demanded so much attention from the world. Not only because it was the focus of God's redemptive plan before the history of the world in many ways. It's also the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan down the road. You see, God's plan of redemption one day will be realized in Jerusalem. In fact, Zechariah says it like this about what's going on right now, about the spiritual conflict that exists around Jerusalem. He said, one day, God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. Do you see the point? Just as the evil one will oppose anything in your life that God wants to do, he's doing the same thing today in Jerusalem. It's no wonder there's spiritual conflict that happens there, physical conflict that happens there. Daniel goes on to tell us, speaking of the Antichrist, that the man of sin or the man of lawlessness is going to destroy the city of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, and the end will come like a flood, and war will continue until the end, and desolations have been decreed. What does that tell us? In the temple of Jerusalem, the man of sin creates something called the abomination of desolation. What in the world is that? I think it just means the temple that is still to be built in Jerusalem now will be defiled. In fact, Paul tells us that the 
man of sin, the man of lawlessness, sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. And for a while, it appears that things are going only from bad to worse in the city of Jerusalem, yet to come. Zechariah tells us that God will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, and the women raped. Half the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. It's a horrible picture of what is to come for the city of Jerusalem that God chose for his name to be reflected, to be manifest. Until finally, God says, enough. I love these words. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations who have gathered against Jerusalem as he fights on the day of battle. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, with half the mountain moving north and half the mountain moving south. I have to tell you, when you stand on the Mount of Olives and think this is where Jesus someday is going to plant his feet, it's not hard to imagine what was predicted through the words of Zechariah. I love the description of what happens next. In that day, there'll be neither sunlight nor cold, frosty darkness. It will be a unique day, a day known only to the Lord, with no distinction between day and night. When evening comes, there'll be light. On that day, living water flows out of Jerusalem, half to the eastern sea and half to the western sea in summer and winter. The Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there'll be one Lord and his name, the only name. I want to say, bring it on. And Jerusalem will be transformed from a city that has experienced conflict of all, kind, of all kinds down through the generations to, to a city where Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords. The scripture tells us that one day men and women of ripe old age will sit together in the streets of Jerusalem in peace. Ezekiel tells us that the city of Jerusalem will become the center of spiritual worship. Wow. In fact, Zechariah says they'll go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord Almighty, and to celebrate the festival of tabernacles. When Jesus reigns in Jerusalem, it's a center of spiritual worship. It also becomes a center of political government for the entire world. Zechariah says the Lord will be king over the whole earth. His name will be the only name. I love these words out of Isaiah chapter 2. In that moment, he judges between the nations and settles disputes for many people. They'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Do those words sound familiar to you? Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. You know where you find those words if you visit New York City? They're on the cornerstone of the United Nations building. I just got one question. How's that working for us? You see, that kind of existence in this world doesn't happen because the leaders of the UN have their, these words engraved on the cornerstone of the UN building in New York. It happens only when Jesus reigns as King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Jerusalem is the center someday of political government. It's the center of spiritual worship. It's also a day coming when Jerusalem is the center of the world's economy. I love these words of Isaiah chapter 60. Your gates will always stand open. They'll never be shut day or night so that people may bring you, you Jerusalem, the wealth of the nations. Wow. Their kings will be led in triumphal procession. Maybe most of all, Zechariah says, the day is coming when men and women of ripe old age will sit together in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them in cane in hand because of their age. The streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. It'll be a day of great triumph and peace like Jerusalem's never experienced in its history. But that's not all. It's not all there is to know about Jerusalem. For a moment, I want you to think about the best place you've ever been on vacation. Or maybe your favorite place on this planet. Where is it that you go, perhaps with your family, maybe even alone, and you go, ah. What's the most beautiful place you've ever visited? For me, it's a place called Bean Point. You might not know about Bean Point. It's located on a little island called Anna Maria Island just off the coast of Bradenton, Florida. My wife and I have been there many times. We walk out to the beach. It's where the waters of Tampa Bay and the Gulf of Mexico come together. Every time I go out there, I can just feel every muscle in my body relax. And I want to say, ah, this is beautiful. We've watched many sunsets there. Get this. The most beautiful place you've ever experienced on earth is nothing compared to what God someday is going to create in a brand new Jerusalem. Listen to these words. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. He says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Lord, your dwelling is now among the people and you will dwell with them. They'll be your people and God, you, you will be with them and be their God and you'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. The new Jerusalem will be the fulfillment of everything that has been missing in Jerusalem today. There's one more insight, one more insight that will help you understand why Jerusalem grabs world attention. Not only because it's been the future of God's redemptive plan for thousands of years, not only because of the fulfillment of God's redemptive plan that will someday happen there, but Scripture tells us it should be the focus of God's redeemed people. 
In fact, the psalmist simply said it like this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May those who love you be secure. May there be peace within your walls and security within your citadels. For the sake of my family and friends, I say, peace be with you. Now, why in the world does God want you and me to pray about Jerusalem? <laughs> you say, Bob, I got enough to handle right here, praying about Lidditz. You know, why does he want me to pray for Jerusalem? Let me suggest a couple of reasons. First of all, Scripture says there's a time coming when the world will turn against the Jews like we've never seen it. You think the Holocaust was bad. Wow. According to the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation, the day is coming when the nations of the world will unite against God's people, the Jews. The anti-Semitism that we see today is just a taste of the horrors that are still to come. So God calls all of us who are his followers today to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But even more than that, think about it like this. When we pray, when you and I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we're praying for something that is humanly impossible. I've been to Jerusalem many times and thought, I don't get it. How can anybody ever solve what's going on here? How can this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians ever be resolved? And the answer is, I have no clue. Ah. Oh yeah, I do. And the only way there's going to be peace in Jerusalem is when the Prince of Peace comes. And rules. So when you and I pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you know what we're praying for? We're praying that Jesus would come and rule as Prince of Peace. You see, the one thing that our world wants more than anything else, it seems to me, is peace. There's talk today about the possibility of a new peace treaty between the Israelis and the Saudis. Frankly, that's exciting. It would be a game changer. If you think about it, the leading Muslim nation in the world, the home of Mecca and Medina, making peace with the Jews, that's a big deal. But no matter how hopeful peace treaties are like that, they just don't last. Only when Jesus reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords will there be lasting peace in that part of the world. And the same is true for you and me. Only when he's in charge of your life and your family and your business and your classroom and your neighborhood, only when he's in charge is there peace. Maybe you've come here today and you'd recognize that's what you lack in your own life. So I'm going to invite you this morning to take a step with God to experience peace that you don't have. Why don't you bow your head for a moment? And without looking at anybody else, I'm going to remind you that the Apostle Paul simply said, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. My friend, if you want to know how to experience peace in your life, 
Start there. You see, the very thing that you might lack in your life is the very thing the world is hungering for. It's peace. And the only one who can bring peace to your life is the same one who ultimately will bring peace to this world. His name is Jesus. Perhaps as you've come here this morning, God has been prodding you maybe for days or even weeks or months, and you know that's what you lack. And today would be the day when you begin a brand new relationship with God. Deep within your heart of hearts, you pray something like this, Lord Jesus, as much as I know how, I want to begin a new relationship with you. I don't understand everything, don't understand everything you did, but I know that you died so that I could experience forgiveness for all my sin. Today I'm asking you to take charge of my life. I'm turning from my way to you, and I'm asking you to take control because I just don't have peace. Scripture says that the peace of God that transcends all of our understanding can be yours through Christ. Maybe those words are yours today. God is prodding you to respond. If he is, then I invite you to tell somebody here. Tell somebody that you've made that choice, that you've prayed that prayer. People here at this church will, be, will do anything they can to help you on your spiritual journey, to help you experience the peace of God that really does transcend all understanding. Thank you, Lord God, for this moment today. Thank you for the incredible opportunity to see you at work in this world in ways that we can't begin to describe. Thank you for what you want to do within us, the change that you want to make in us, the peace that you want to bring to us and to our families, to our homes, to our workplace, to our classroom. Begin in us today to produce your peace. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hosting for this podcast has been brought to you by Anchor from Spotify. Our intro and outro song is Creative Mind by Ben Sound. From all of us here at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.